Good morning. Welcome to Rivermont this morning, and I invite you to turn in your Bible to Daniel chapter 2. Last week we looked at Daniel 1, and we saw Daniel and his friends take a stand for God in Babylon. They refused dependence upon King Nebuchadnezzar, and instead proclaimed that the Lord Almighty is the one who provides for them. He is faithful, and He is faithful to be with us, even in the dark and dangerous places of our hearts and lives. Chapter 1 ended with Daniel's long view of God's faithfulness that though they were in exile for nearly 70 years, the Lord was with His people and He brought them home. With chapter 2, we go back to the story to the early years of Nebuchadnezzar's reign to the early years of Daniel's captivity. Nebuchadnezzar, as Brett said, was having a little bit of a crisis of confidence. He, the strong and powerful general who had conquered Judah, began to have dreams distressing dreams and insomnia plagued him as he worried about these dreams and what they meant and what kind of end would come to Nebuchadnezzar so he called in verse 2 to all sorts of advisors magicians and enchanters and sorcerers and he wanted them to help him in his distress we're happy to help they suggested just tell us what the dream was and we'll interpret it for you oh no 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 Nebuchadnezzar said If you really have the power that you say you have, then you will tell me what my dream was and you'll interpret it. These wise men replied to the king that nobody can do that. No king has ever asked their wise men to do such a thing. And that made Nebuchadnezzar very angry. And he planned to kill all the wise men in Babylon, including Daniel and his friends. Nebuchadnezzar was afraid. He had lost his confidence And we pick up the story at that point in verse 14. Then Daniel replied with prudence and discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard, who had gone out to kill the wise men of Babylon. He declared to Arioch, the king's captain, Why is the decree of the king so urgent? Then Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. And Daniel went in and requested the king to appoint him a time that he might show the interpretation to the king. Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions, and told them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery, so that Daniel and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. Then the mystery was revealed to Daniel in a vision of the night. Then Daniel blessed the God of heaven. Daniel answered and said, Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong wisdom and might. He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness, and the light dwells with Him. To you, O God of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might and have now made known to me What we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that as we come to your word today, your spirit would open our eyes and open our hearts, that we might see what you have for us here, and that we might be strengthened to follow you, even when it's difficult to see the end from the beginning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have you ever had a crisis of confidence? How did you make it through? 
What did you do to make it through a time of uncertainty in your life? Perhaps your confidence has been shaken as you sit across from a doctor who delivers bad news. News that you really, really don't want to hear. Or perhaps your confidence wanes as you attempt to make a decision. There's a fork in the path of your career and you're not sure which way you should go and you're not sure how you're going to go about making the decision. Perhaps your confidence quakes when you have to confront someone over a misdeed. And you're not sure that you're strong enough to deal with the anger that's coming your way because you confronted them. Or perhaps you've attempted to love and repair a relationship stymied by the refusal of someone else to engage or forgive or even reconcile. What do you do when you face a crisis of confidence? Our text shows us by contrast what someone can do when they face a crisis. Nebuchadnezzar dealt with his crisis one way and Daniel a different. Let's look at how they faced their own crises. Well, when we face a crisis of confidence, it seems natural, doesn't it? That we cry out, we call out, we ask for help. But what goes on in our hearts when we cry out? Nebuchadnezzar cried out essentially to strengthen his own frail power structures. And it created within him a restless heart. The most powerful man in the world at the time. And he was undone by this little dream in verse 1. His fear of losing power led Nebuchadnezzar to squeeze and intimidate and punish those who might have answers he doesn't want to hear. He tells the sorcerers and the magicians in verse 5, Tell me the dream and interpret it, or you shall be torn limb from limb. He was a cruel man. These wise men couldn't do it. So again, in verses 8 and 9, the king says, Do it or die. And the man answered once more, verse 11, No one alive can do it. Only the gods can, and they're not here. Nebuchadnezzar had had enough. So in verse 13, he said, Kill them all. Off with their heads. It's interesting, isn't it, that all of that fame and wealth and power and advisors and magicians and sorcerers, all that the world had to offer, and no one could do anything about Nebuchadnezzar's restless heart. Why? It's because all the world has to offer. Every bit of it, you add it all together, and none of it is sufficient to deal with a restless and fearful heart. You can't bully or buy or pressure people into making the restlessness of your heart go away. You can't stomp, you can't berate, you can't demand, you can't manage your way into experiencing peace. I had a boss once that Whenever he got anxious or stressed or worried about something, he would get angrier and would become more demanding with his staff. It felt like the only way that he knew how to deal with his fear and his restlessness was to make sure that everybody else felt that same fear and restlessness. And he tried to bully, he tried to intimidate employees to deal with his fear, but it never worked. You know why? Because... Restlessness and fearfulness is a heart problem. And you can't run away from it. You can't bully your way out of it. You can't pressure somebody else to fix the restlessness in your heart. It doesn't work. Bosses sometimes try that. And so do parents. Have you ever felt a crisis of confidence about what to do over your children? Of course you have. And if you're anything like me, then you've perhaps used the pressure and demanding and squeeze tactic to force your kids to conform. 
Perhaps you've yelled or stomped or even used shame as a tactic to get them to do what you want them to do. Well, it's clear, young lady, that that you care nothing about me. You care nothing about this family. Some people just can't be relied upon. Shame and shaming words. That'll teach them. We think that'll make me feel better, but it never does, does it? It simply makes matters worse. Because restlessness and fearfulness lies within our hearts. The problem is internal to us. And we can't pressure somebody else to fix our hearts. Nebuchadnezzar cried out to his power to try to deal with his restlessness and it didn't work. See how foolish that strategy is. And yet we do the same thing all the time. Well, how did Daniel cry out in his crisis of confidence? It was certainly in contrast to Nebuchadnezzar. He cried out in peace because he didn't rely on himself. Daniel knew the God who sovereignly stands behind all of history. And therefore, Daniel could cry out and have confidence in the Lord even when he faced death. Because he knew, personally knew, the king who was on the throne of heaven and earth. Look at verse 15. When Arioch, the captain of the army, came to begin execution, Daniel calmly asked, Why the urgency? Isn't that an interesting question? He's coming to kill you and say, Why are you so quick to do this? In verse 16, before even trying to come up with a solution, he made an appointment to go do what the king asked. Before he'd even asked anyone, before he tried to figure it out, he knew that God was going to deliver. And in verses 17 and 18, he went back home and asked his friends to do what? To pray. To ask the Lord of mercy, the God of heaven, to show him both the dream and the interpretation. Now that pattern, that challenges me a great deal in two ways. First, he turned to his friends for help and for prayer. In our world, perhaps we try to go it alone. We try to separate ourselves from our community, from the people who love us, the people who support us. We isolate ourselves and wall ourselves off in order to deal with a crisis in private. We may like to turn inward and, and look for all sorts of strategies to deal with ourselves and, our, and, our ability, and in our ability. And then we're shocked and perhaps angry when the community isn't there. But... If we wall ourselves off from the people of God, if we isolate ourselves from those who love us and want to help, should we really be shocked and angry when we feel isolated? No. It's far better to engage with one another and invest in relationships before the crisis comes so that when it does come, you have relationships that can help you work through your crisis encourage you to find a small group or a ministry group or a prayer group or some place where you can know other people here in the church and be known by them. Invest in relationships now so that when you face the crisis, they're there to help you and there to support you and pray for you. The second way this challenges me is in what to do. My natural reaction, and perhaps yours too, is, is to try to figure it all out and then pray. Now, there are lots of strategies that were available to Daniel. He was a smart guy. He was wise in Babylon. He could have put pen to paper and tried to work it out. Or he, he could call in a few favors, couldn't he? He had political connections and perhaps he could lean on one or two of them and save his life and save the life of his friends. But instead, Daniel prayed. 
He called out to God. He cried out to God. The God who is able to change things. The God who holds the king's heart in his hands. He cried out to that loving and gracious God. And he had his friends cry out to God. Now, you may be thinking to yourself, well, of course he did. Daniel's a Bible guy. That's what he's supposed to do, right? It's a Bible story. Of course Daniel prayed. But not so fast. He was a gifted, gifted man. He was talented and he was wise. And perhaps the strongest temptation for gifted people is to trust in ourselves to work through a problem. But friends, prayer confesses that we aren't able. We don't have the ability. We don't have the strength. We don't have the wisdom. And we need God when we face our crisis of confidence. We need the one, the only one, who can be relied upon completely and fully. We need to call out to the one who knows what we're going through, who knows the weakness, who knows our frame, as the psalm says, and he loves us all the same. And he's the one who knows the end from the beginning. We cry out to him because our confidence is not in ourselves, but it's in the Lord. But not only do we cry out, when we face a crisis. But we also remember. Look at verse 19. The Lord revealed to Daniel the dream. And we think, great, all is well. He's finally got the answer. But really? I mean, after knowing the dream, now comes the hard part. He has to go tell Nebuchadnezzar, the, the murderous king, about the dream. He had to go deliver the bad news, the really, really bad news, to this king who already was worried about losing his power. And Daniel had to go tell him, yep, what you were worried about is going to happen. And it's going to go really, really badly for you, Nebuchadnezzar. It seems like it got worse. After God answered the prayer, it got worse for Daniel. The content of that dream is recorded for us in verses 31 to 35. There was a large statue... And of that statue, the head was of gold and the chest silver, the torso was of bronze and the legs of iron, and then the feet were a mixture of iron and clay. It was a giant statue. It was an idol that was very common in those days, an idol that would be fashioned by human hands. And then also there was a rock that's not cut with human hands, a rock that is in its natural state, a rock that that has been touched by no person, and that rock comes and destroys the the statue. It smashes it to smithereens, but the rock grew into a mighty mountain. And the dream is simple enough. But the interpretation was a full frontal assault on the place that Nebuchadnezzar relied, on his strength and his power. In that crisis of confidence, Nebuchadnezzar took comfort in how powerful he was. He commanded people's lives. He could take people's lives. When shaken, the king hung onto his power. But what does Daniel tell him? Verse 37. Your power and your glory have been given to you by the God of heaven. It's amazing. Remember, O king, Daniel reminds him, you only have power because it's been given to you by God, by my God. It's tough medicine. For a strong-headed man, a self-made man like Nebuchadnezzar to understand, he doesn't have it all together. He didn't build this, this kingdom on his own. It was given to him by someone else, by God. And then Daniel continued with the interpretation, verse 38. 
You, Nebuchadnezzar, are the head of gold, but another kingdom is going to rise after you. In verse 39, another after that will rule over the earth, and then a fourth kingdom as strong as iron will arise, and yet its weakness is that the iron is mixed together with clay. Nebuchadnezzar was told that he and Babylon are the first. They are the, the head of gold on this statue. But then it becomes a matter of interpretation for us to understand what the rest of it means. Most commentators agree that the silver that follows is the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians that destroyed Babylon while Daniel yet lived. And then the bronze was the Greek empire with Alexander the Great. And then the iron was the Roman empire in its, its might and in its power. And yet it was inherently weak as it spread around the world and assimilated different religions and people groups. These four kingdoms will reappear in chapter 7 as animals rather than part of a statue. But both there in chapter 7 and here in chapter 2, there's a fifth kingdom. And that fifth kingdom in verse 44 shall never be destroyed. Instead, its king and kingdom will smash them all. It's pictured as a rock that's not cut out with human hands. It's not part of an idol. It's not part of a statue. It comes as it is supernaturally made. No human being being given the authority to shape it or fashion it or bend it. Not only will this king and this kingdom of rock smash all the others, but it alone is going to grow into a mighty mountain that fills the whole earth, Daniel says in verse 35. Well, who is this? Who is this fifth kingdom? All the... This rock and this kingdom that demolishes all the others and grows mightily worldwide is Jesus. And it's Jesus' kingdom. In fact, Jesus cites this very passage in Luke chapter 20, verse 18, where he says that he is the rock. He is the cornerstone of the kingdom that will crush all that oppose him. And his kingdom is going to grow. Jesus is the king that stands behind all the others. Behind all the empires of the world, Jesus stands. Jesus is the ruler over heaven and earth. And His kingdom, and His kingdom alone, is never going to fail. Nebuchadnezzar might pretend like he's powerful, but he's just another ruler in the long line of failures of empires. He's just another cog in the machine. When all the empires fall and they inevitably fail, Jesus still reigns. Jesus was the king behind Nebuchadnezzar. Jesus was the king behind Darius. Jesus is the king who rules and overrules every empire that this world has ever known. His kingdom will flourish. Friends, I hope that encourages you in an election year. No matter who is elected. No matter who is taking elected office. No matter which Supreme Court justice dies. No matter which defender of religious liberty passes away, Jesus still reigns. It was true under King Nebuchadnezzar, that cruel and awful man. It was true under Caesars. It was even true under Hitler. Jesus still reigns. Jesus reigns over all the world and His kingdom will never fail. We stand for Him in crisis because of His kingdom. And because Jesus is on the throne. His kingdom shall spread from shore to shore. As we are changed by his grace. And added to his worldwide family. And friends that identity. 
as a citizen of God's kingdom, as a citizen, a a person in God's family, that citizenship supersedes any other allegiance to nation or state that you might have. Our primary citizenship, our primary identity, what marks us as people is not that we belong to the United States of America. It's not that we have an American passport. What marks us as a people, the people of God, is that we are marked by the blood of Jesus the King. And that kingdom will never, ever fail. But it will thrive. And His kingdom shall thrive all around the world. It shall grow into a mighty mountain and cover the earth. Daniel says, as he looked forward to that Messiah who would come and reign in power, you and I have the privilege of looking back on the Jesus who has already come. And He is coming again. And just how does that kingdom go forward? How does it reign? How does He add people to His kingdom? Through His death and resurrection. Rather than grasping for authority and control like Nebuchadnezzar and other rulers do, King Jesus came to live and die in our place such that we are marked, we are bought at the cost of His own blood if we trust in Him. The kingdom will come. It's a kingdom of sacrifice. And one day, His kingdom will spread from shore to shore and there will be no more evil. There will be no more sin. There will be no more empires. But the kingdom of Jesus shall reign. Now, how would you like to be the guy who had to deliver that message to the crazed, power-hungry, death-threatening Nebuchadnezzar? How do you like it when you have to stand up for Christ amidst ridicule and scorn and it makes your heart afraid? Daniel, perhaps with a lump in his throat, had to be the one to tell mighty Nebuchadnezzar, you are dust And yet he knew very well that that might be the very last message he ever delivers. Where did his courage come from in that kind of crisis? Where will your courage come from to stand for Jesus? To witness to Jesus? To proclaim to a world that you are saved by grace alone? Where will courage come from? By remembering who God is. Look at his prayer in verses 20 to 23. God, His God, is the one with wisdom and power. He removes kings, even like this threatening king. He removes them and He sets up kings. His God is the one that grants wisdom to those who lack. Verse 22, He reveals deep and hidden things. He even knows what is in the darkness. And this God, verse 23, is the faithful God of His fathers. What's Daniel saying here? He's saying that God has been with us in the past. He's been faithful to our fathers. He's been faithful to us as we struggled in this life. And He's not going to let us down now. Daniel is reminding himself of how Jesus had, had blessed him in the past and gives him courage to face the present. I wonder if God has ever delivered you. Have you ever tasted of God's faithfulness to you in the past? If He has, if He has given you His faithfulness, remembering that faithfulness in the past will propel you with confidence into the future. That's where your strength is going to come from. By remembering that God has been with you and that God is with you and He shall be with you to the end. That's where confidence comes from. 
Daniel doesn't know where things are going to get to to take him in the future. But verse 22, he says his faithful father knows his way through the darkness. He praised God for the goodness that he could see, that he could experience from his Lord and his Savior, even though he couldn't see his way through to the end. Have you ever been afraid in the dark? Afraid in uncertainty? It can be fun to think back to those times as kids when we were afraid of the dark. My parents' house, there was a, a flower arrangement. Then when you turned out the lights and you just had the, the ambient light of the, of the night lights in the hall, that flower arrangement looked like a monster in the hallway. And it terrified me. It can be fun to think about all those times when we were afraid of the dark as kids. But darkness and the unknown is not always a fun place to be, is it? I, for four years, taught in a seminary in Kenya. And this man, Peter, from Uganda, came to travel to sit in the class when I taught one year. And he arrived in the classroom not knowing whether his family was alive or not. The Lord's Resistance Army, this cult from southern Sudan had come down to his village in northern Uganda and they had destroyed his church building and were trying to destroy his family. His wife and his children ran one way into the jungle and Peter ran the other, trying to lure these hooligans away that wanted to kill him and kill his family. He was trying to save their lives. He couldn't see through the darkness to know whether his family had lived or not. He arrived and sat in my classroom, not knowing if his family was alive. For three weeks, he heard nothing from his family. How do you make it through that kind of darkness? That kind of uncertainty when your world is shaken to the foundations, how do you make it through? Thankfully, Peter finally heard from his family that they had survived. And yet, sometimes it's hard for us to see the end from the beginning, isn't it? We don't know how things are going to turn out. And yet the Lord calls us to trust Him and trust His faithfulness. Perhaps you're at the doctor's office and you're waiting a result and you are uncertain about your future, whether you're going to live or not. Friends, the Lord knows what is in that darkness. And He loves you. Perhaps in those days after you lose a loved one, the darkness and the pain closes in. The Lord knows what is in that darkness. And He calls you His own. Maybe you've lost a job or you've lost a business opportunity. Perhaps even for standing up for your faith, you've lost something. Or there's uncertainty whether this relationship can be restored. Or you wonder, is there any way for my shattered life to be put back together? I can't see my way forward. Friends, in that kind of crisis of confidence, you find your courage when you remember that the Lord sees, the Lord knows, and the Lord loves you. Even in the uncertainty, even in the darkness, Jesus is there. And we hang on to that when we remember He's been faithful to me in the past. Let me remember, let me count the ways, let me journal all the ways He's been faithful in the past so that I can believe He is present in the future and shall remain with me forever. 
Friends, that kind of confidence to walk with the Lord, even when you can't see the end from the beginning, the places where we sit right now, that confidence comes when we know that our God knows what's in the darkness. And He shall prevail because He bought you with His own blood. I love the hymn, Our God, Our Help in Ages Past. Our hope for years to come. Our shelter from the stormy blast in our eternal home. Do you hear it? God has been faithful in the past and He dwells with me now and He's going to bring me home on the last day because His kingdom will prevail. And that truth, friends is where you get confidence to deal with your crisis. In verse 46, Nebuchadnezzar bowed before Daniel and Daniel's God. Imagine that. The king over all the known world at the time, as one pastor said, bowing and stooping before an exiled Jew. How the fates are reversed. Yes, the kingdoms and the empires of this world, the kingdoms of this world, China, Russia, the United States, we will all be brought to an end. They will all bow before the feet of a crucified Jew, the Lord Jesus. Friends, we know the one who writes the very annals of history and he has called you his beloved and he has bought you with his own blood. Remember that in your crisis of confidence. And you'll find your courage. Let's pray together. Father, we ask that by your power and your might, you would open our eyes to see that you are with us. To see that you are faithful even when we are not. To see that you are gracious even when we sin on purpose and sin in such grievous ways. You are forgiving and gracious to people like us. Help us to see that you are with us in our uncertainties in our darkness, that you not only can see your way through it, but you will faithfully guide us home safely to be with you. Lord, help us in our own crisis of confidence. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen.